0: no, I guess uh, NASCAR starts here today or something like that or whatever. Yeah, I guess I tipped my hand, didn't I? The important thing is baseball season is soon upon us. Go Red Sox. Okay, here we are. No, really, what's uh, fast upon us is Easter. Easter is coming just a couple of weeks, April the 8th. And I don't know about you, but Easter has a way of sneaking up. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because in Christmas season, there's, it's sort of more extended, and there's a, a lot of cultural lift, as it were, that goes on. At least reminds us what's happening. But it it's, appears that Easter kind of catches us unawares, comes up on us quickly. And, and wow, I mean, Christmas is significant, to be sure. The Incarnation? the incarnation alone is not enough. We need the message of Easter, right? We need the resurrection from the dead. Proof that Christ's atoning sacrifice was accepted by God the Father. And as he lives, so we too will share that resurrection life in him. So it's an important time in the Christian calendar. So we want to mark that. And I want to do it through a sermon series. Pastor Vince spoke of it. I've prepared four messages it's called the Passion and the Glory. It begins this morning. And we will start this morning with a little bit different kind of service or message. It's called the the Road to Jerusalem. And this message is drawn from a harmony of the gospels. We're going to bring together all four gospels in service of this message. And we're going to look primarily at the final six months of the public ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But why, why preach this kind of a sermon? Why not, why not just pick a passage and, and go with it, which is what we usually do? And I think the reason that we want to do this this morning is because many kind of lack a, a comprehensive view of the life of Christ particularly maybe it's not 1130 Joe they must be falling asleep early you can cut that out of the tape by the way Okay. you can cut all of this out of the tape I can wait I'm patient is that the warm up or is that the real deal yeah, I don't know. When they start strafing, that's when you get under the pew, okay? <laughs> so why a message drawn from a harmony of the gospels? And I and I think it's because many lack kind of a comprehensive view of Christ. We read the gospels, but seldom do we read them in harmony. And each gospel, you know, was was written with a particular point of view, a particular emphasis that the inspired gospel writer brings to bear in order to help us to know Christ. And and by bringing the four of them together, we get a more complete picture of who Jesus Christ is and and what he did and said during his roughly three and a half years of of public ministry. So to bring it together in a harmony, I think, gives us a, a better picture. Beyond that, I I think it helps us to see Christ in a kind of a sweeping fashion. We, in a short period of time, can, can look at the whole flow of his public ministry. And as we do that, we, we grow in our knowledge of him. And as we grow in our knowledge of him, we grow in our love for him. It's hard to love someone that you don't know very well the more you grow to know Him, the more you'll grow to love Him. And so by bringing the four Gospels together this morning, and I will do it again next Sunday, we will just grow in that knowledge and love for the Savior. Third reason to do it this morning, at least in the way that I'm doing it here, is it explains the purpose of the triumphal entry. Next Sunday is what we traditionally call Palm Sunday. And it's the time when Christ entered into the city of Jerusalem. It was a very important event in his life, it was a necessary event. And again, without context, it seems hard to sort of understand what's going on. And in fact, what we will do next week is a message entitled Given Sunday, which is the triumphal entry. Why Friday? in which the crowds say, we want nothing to do with this man. Crucify him. So given Sunday, why Friday? That's next Sunday's message. It brings color, context, understanding to the events of the Passion Week, which is what we'll cover next week. So for those reasons, and undoubtedly others, We're going to look this morning all through. We're going to ransack the four Gospels. That means you need to be paying attention. You need to be turning and flipping and moving through your Bible. Now for some, you may not be to a place where you can move quickly through the four Gospel accounts. And so if you find yourself falling behind, what my advice to you is, is to don't worry about if you can't get to the passage in time, but, but don't lose the train of thought. Don't stop listening while you're checking the index and trying to find that because by the time you get there, I'm going to be on to another one. And what will happen is you'll, you'll end up missing the whole message and be very frustrated. So if you're, if you're dexterous in the New Testament, then follow me. If you find at any point you are falling behind, then just listen. Just listen and follow along. We're not going to do as we normally do, putting up on the screens all the page numbers of all the references. We're not going to even cite the cross references up there. There's just too many of them, it would be a blur. So, you ready? Put your sandals on. Here we go. All four Gospels have a very abbreviated beginning. An abbreviated birth narrative, as it were. And then the public ministry of Jesus Christ explodes out of the pages of the four Gospels. It begins with the preaching of the forerunner, John the Baptist himself. And then with the assertion of Jesus' messianic authority. He does that most clearly in John's Gospel in chapter 2 and in verse 18. There, Jesus cleanses the temple for the first of two times. In the process of doing that, he asserts his messianic authority. Verse 18, the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us? as your authority for doing these things, driving the money changers out of the temple. Jesus answered them, verse 19, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After that, the Gospel narratives go pretty much silent for about the next eight months of his public life. There's really not a lot covered. John gives us a little more in chapter 3, which is his, his private, secret, nighttime meeting with Nicodemus, a leading Pharisee among the Jewish people. Verse 2, chapter 3, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That's a reference to the activity of the prior eight months or so, in which in and around Jerusalem and southern Judea, Jesus has been moving about and doing a number of signs, that is, a number of miracles and preaching to the people. It's alluded to here by Nicodemus. And that pretty much is all there is. The next big installment in his life covers a period of about 18 months in which he leaves Jerusalem and southern Judea and heads back to Galilee. He heads north to Galilee. His time in Galilee covers about an 18-month period of his public ministry. Picture there of Galilee. The event that sort of sets this Galilean ministry in motion is the arrest of John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 4 verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. So he heads north into Galilee, not back to to reside in his hometown, but leaving that to take up residence in Capernaum, which is on the shore, the north shore of the lake, of the Sea of Galilee. On his way north, John's Gospel fills in a A detail for us, there was a significant meeting in John chapter 4 with a certain Samaritan woman at a well. You remember that. He actually spends a few days there with her and she comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ and becomes a very passionate and effective evangelist, sharing the gospel with her folks who live in her hometown. This period now of the Galilean ministry, Matthew summarizes well for us in chapter 4, Verses 23 and following, where he says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria. And they they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. This is a time of increasing popularity for him. He's moving in and around the northern part of the, the nation of Israel. And the reason Galilee is so significant, it's not just that he was you know, brought up there. The reason it's so significant is because Galilee at that time contains the largest population of Jews in the world. And so he's going to bring the message that he is the Messiah and that the kingdom is at hand and he's the king. The place to do it is where you find the most Jewish people, and most Jewish people are found in Galilee. And so he spends quite a bit of time there. And he moves in and around, and uh, verse 25, there are a number of places are named both east and west of the Jordan River in the north part. There's a very extensive ministry there. While he is there and involved in that ministry, he chooses and ordains 12 of a, of a large following of disciples. He, he handpicks them. He selects them after an evening spent on the mountain in prayer. And he chooses them to be his apostles, his spokesmen, the 12 disciples. We see that in Luke chapter 6 and verse 13. Luke six thirteen. Actually, pick it up in 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. And then Luke gives us the names of these men. Of course, among these 12 men is Judas Iscariot, who will later betray him. Little wonder he spent the entire night in prayer before he made this choice. It must have been agonizing to his soul to bring into his inner circle one who would ultimately betray him. As this ministry in and around. Galilee, this 18 months, continues, there is a growing hostility that grows on the part of the religious establishment, the leadership of the nation. Now, something we need to, to know and to kind of hang on to, in the southern portion of Israel, primarily the city of Jerusalem, we find the Temple of Solomon. The Temple of Solomon was under the control of what's known as the Sadducees, They were the priestly group in the nation of Israel, and that was their domain. They're the ones who were making ridiculous amounts of money off the sacrificial system through their corrupt exchange rates. The rest of the nation, and in particular the northern part of Galilee, was under the the religious control of what's called the uh, the Pharisees the Pharisees, and they were more like lay preachers. And they, they operated through the synagogue system. There were Pharisees in the south, to be sure, but the north was primarily the domain of the Pharisees, the south in and around the city of Jerusalem, the domain of the Sadducees. Now Jesus had really irritated the Sadducees when he opens his ministry publicly by cleansing the temple and disrupting their corrupt system of making money. Now at that point in time, the Pharisees were secretly sort of going, go for it. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they did not like each other at all. And so while Jesus is, is getting under the skin of the Sadducees, the Pharisees are kind of on his side. But he gets out of Dodge, he leaves Jerusalem, he goes north into Galilee, and now he's into the, into the territory of the Pharisees, and he's beginning to disrupt their system. And this is important to know because essentially for the, for the three years that are going to go on here, almost three years, he is going to alternate back and forth between the Sadducees and the Pharisees and play them off against each other. And in the process of doing that, he's, he's going to be enabled to move among the people, conduct his ministry, and yet stay one step ahead of the hangman. It's not until the end when these enemies get together together. And form a conspiracy that they ultimately get him on the cross. So he's in the north and he's messing around up there, at least in the domain of the Pharisees, by continuing to preach about the kingdom and to continue to point out the hypocrisy of the Pharisaical understanding of Judaism. They make up all kinds of rules for people and place these heavy burdens on people and they won't so much as lift a finger to help them. And Jesus continues to point that out. Well, as the the hostility grows, we find in Matthew chapter 12 that it reaches a boiling point. And this boiling point shows itself in an official rejection of Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, verse 24. Actually, let's pick it up in 22. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and, and were saying, this cannot be the son of David, can it? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons." Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. Any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? He's pointing out the foolishness of the charge they've placed upon him. It continues to develop here, and we don't have time to develop at all. But it arrives at verse 31, what is known as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unforgivable sin. Verse 31, therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. The unforgivable sin. That is attributing the work of the Spirit through Christ in all of these amazing healing miracles to the power of Satan. Attributing the work of the Spirit to the power of Satan is the unforgivable sin. And it represents for the... For the Pharisees, the fact that they have so thoroughly rejected his message that there is no hope left for them. They are in open hostility, they are hardened in their hearts towards the Messiah, the unforgivable sin. It's at this point that Jesus begins to speak in parables. Matthew picks it up in Matthew 13, contains the longest section of the four gospels of his teaching in parables. Can't wait till we get there to look at these parables. But he begins to speak in parables. And parables have a lot of purposes, not the least of which is it allows him to continue to teach openly and publicly and yet conceal his message in such a way that they don't have any grounds to arrest him and to kill him because by this time they're ready to do it. So he can continue to move freely and openly and speak and preach publicly by concealing the message in a parable and then later privately explaining it to his disciples. So it both reveals and conceals all at the same time. Now, the height of his popularity is covered in John's Gospel, John chapter 6. And it has something interesting for us here, John 6. Pick it up in just one and two. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd followed him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was performing on those who were sick. They are following him because of what they can get from him. Now this is the, this is the feeding of the 5,000. This is kind of the height of his popularity. 5,000 men plus women and probably some children. So a very large number is fed here. It's an incredible miracle. It's a creation miracle where he takes essentially a small kid's lunch, a few sardines and a couple of tortillas and he turns it into a meal capable of feeding thousands. It's an incredible creation miracle. And when the people see this, they want to take him, John tells us, and make him king by force. They want to put him on the throne. Let's march to Jerusalem. Let's evict the Romans. Let's install you as the king of Israel. And by the way, I don't have to work anymore. Because whenever I get hungry, right, just rub the magic lantern and lunch appears. Jesus rejects this superficial attachment. To him, And he goes into a very lengthy discussion recorded for us in John's Gospel by which he lays out what it means to be a follower of him. And it is so offensive to people that by the time he is done, verse 66, John 6, they want nothing to do with him. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Now, if you want to be popular, this is not the way to go about it. But he doesn't want a superficial popularity. He doesn't want large crowds that follow him for wrong reasons. He wants people who understand the depth of the need of their own soul who will come to him for salvation. And so he intentionally disperses the crowds. This is the end of the peak of his popularity. He crests here and begins a downward slide that will ultimately end up with him on the cross. It's also interesting to note that from this time, he begins to avoid public miracles. Mark chapter 8 is a good place to go to see this. Mark 8, verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again, he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Prior to this, Jesus performed miracles in a public context. And there were many reasons to do that, and I'm not going to elaborate them all now. But he he wanted to be known, and miracles are certainly a way to do it. They are his messianic credentials. Credentials. But after the official rejection in Matthew 12, and after the popular rejection of John 6, he now begins a different phase. And this is the private phase. He is trying to avoid the crowds. He is seeking to get away. And so when he does miracles, and he continues to do them, although not as frequently, he does them more privately, and he, and he tells the people that he is he is healed, to don't tell anybody about it. Be quiet about this. Because I don't want the crowds. Just go home. You can see, go home. Don't even go into the village. Just go home. He wants time alone. He knows that he is arriving at the very end of the line. And so he wants time alone with the 12 disciples. He needs to prepare them for what is to come. And so what begins now is, a, is an almost a frantic search for, for alone time. And yet he is still so popular that people continue to seek him out. But he redraw, he, the Gospels tell us he withdraws at this point first out of the country of Israel. He actually leaves the country he goes to the seacoast, and and he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. They're north of the country, and they're on the seacoast, the Mediterranean Sea. So he goes first to Tyre and Sidon, lands of the Gentiles. And he goes there to to try to get away. But he's found even there. We have the Syrophoenician woman, you remember? He spends a little bit of time there, and then he he leaves that because he, he can't get the privacy he needs there. And he goes further north into what's known as Caesarea Philippi. He goes to Caesarea Philippi, which, which lies at the, at the foot of Mount Hermon. And again, he is there to try to be alone. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21, gives us a little insight into this. Matthew 15, 21, Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon, and the Canaanite woman from the region came to him, so forth. This is the Syrophoenician woman. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He leaves Tyre and Sidon and he goes, as I say, to Caesarea Philippi. And it's there he's, he's asking his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And ultimately, of course, who do you say that I am? He's trying to train them privately, he's trying to get them ready for what they'll face. You have to understand the psychology of all of this. I mean, these 12 have been following him, and it has been an amazing ride. Everywhere they go, he's healing. He's feeding. The the multitudes are flocking to him. He's casting out demons. He's given authority to them to do similar miracles. There's wild popularity. Yeah, there's some of the Pharisees. They're not too happy. They're grumbling on the side. but, But the crowds are with you, Jesus. And he says, beware of the leaven." of the scribes and the Pharisees. Does that mean we're supposed to not take bread or take bread? He said, you... Right? Beware of their teaching. It is going to leaven the whole loaf. It's going to poison the crowd. Yes, it looks like things are going well. They're not. You need to understand. So he he gets alone with them, and he, he tries to privately instruct them. And it's at this time... Verse 21, chapter 16. It's at this time that for the very first time, he reveals the fact that he is going to be killed. That his death is close at hand. From that time, verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And the disciples said, Okay, now we get it. No, they don't say that at all. What Peter says, verse 22, taking him to the, to the side, he says, uh, Jesus, you got a minute? You can you come over here? We need, we need to talk. You got it all wrong. Jesus, you, you, you got it all mixed up. God forbid it, Lord, that this shall never happen to you. You're going to be killed. By the leadership of the nation? God forbid. Jesus responds to him in verse 23, right? And says, get behind me who? Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Speaks to them about the costly nature of discipleship here. You wish to follow after me, Take up your own instrument of execution and follow me. This point in time, as it begins to sink into them, their faith begins to develop a serious crack. A, there is a major crisis of faith that begins to occur among the twelve at this point in time. Everything is going well, and, and now he's talking about dying. Dying. And he's he's talking about if we want to follow after him, we need to die too. This is not what I signed up for. There's a major crisis of faith going on in their lives right at this moment. And it's at this point that Jesus does something really incredible. You see, he takes three of them aside, right? He takes them up onto a mountain. He heals back his flesh, as it were, and he gives them a glimpse of his glory in the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they see him, the crack is mended. They see something that they could have never imagined. We're in the presence of God himself. Following their faces. He puts them back together. So they're ready for what will come. It's time to leave Galilee. Actually, Caesarea Philippi. It's time to head south into the city. It's about the last six months of his life now. It's going to be spent in and around the city of Jerusalem. He's actually going to make three trips into the city, or at least close to the city, two in and one close, and then he's going to retreat again after each one. The first trip, trip number one, occurs in early October. Early October, and we are really indebted to John's gospel To understand these three trips because he's the one who really narrates them for us. This is a gigantic piece of the public ministry that only John talks about. Greatly indebted to John's gospel for this. So the first trip, we pick it up in John chapter 1. By the way, just if you're keeping notes or whatever, Luke chapter 9 verse 51 says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Hark, I hear an angel. John 7. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. It's also known as the feast of tabernacles. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So he get out of the feast, walk right into the middle of it all, do something amazing, something spectacular, and you'll have your crowds back again. Because at this point, his half-brothers, they have no belief. They mock him. Now, this Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, was one of the mandatory feasts for the, Christ, for the Jewish calendar. There was a lot involved to it, but not the least of which is that, that it included a daily drink offering. Water would be, would be gathered and would be brought into the temple area, and it, it would be poured out as an offering. The purpose of this was to to commemorate the miraculous supply of water that God provided to his people while they wandered 40 years in the wilderness. It was to look forward to the future when, when water would be poured out in abundance, according to the prophets. The desert, the Arabah, would begin to sprout and bloom during Messiah's kingdom. John chapter 7, verse 37, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the the Scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? No, people don't know what to make of it all. While he is here, chapter 9 of John's Gospel, We have a most amazing miracle. The granting of sight to the man born blind. I love this chapter of John's Gospel, John chapter 9. It's so loaded with sarcasm. It just kind of appeals to me. But it was an incredible miracle, an undeniable miracle. I mean, the religious leadership, they even got the kid's parents, and they tried to get them to say that he wasn't born blind. They cannot explain it. They just don't like it. Jesus departs after this miracle. He withdraws from Jerusalem. He ministers in Judea and sort of avoids Jerusalem at this time. The last thing he, he leaves with the people is this miracle of the healing of the blind man. And, and he gives it to them to contemplate. You remember how it ends up. Right? He says that, that if you say you can see, you're really blind. And if you are willing to admit you're blind, then you will be able to see. Translated. If you think you know who I am, then you have no idea. You're really blind. You're spiritually blind. If you will admit your need, then your eyes will be open. He leaves it with them to contemplate, and he gets out of dodge. Now, according to Luke's gospel, we have to go to Luke 10 for this. At this point in time, he appoints 70 others. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now, after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Continue to preach. He sends out a crowd ahead of him. Some commentators offer this, I'm kind of inclined to it myself actually, is that these 70 are to replace the Sanhedrin, the 70 of the Sanhedrin, the elders of Israel, whose job it would have been and should have been to proclaim Messiah's coming. And since they won't do it, he appoints a replacement group of elders to go do it. Can't prove it, but I kind of like it. He's outside of Jerusalem. He's coming into these towns. This is basically their last chance. Basically their last chance. That's early October. He makes another trip into the city in early December. Early December, trip number two. John's Gospel again narrates it for us. Picks it up in In John chapter 10, verse 22, at that time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. He's back to the city now, it's early December. This is the Feast of Dedication, it's also known as the Feast of Hanukkah. This is the feast in which the nation remembered God's deliverance from Antiochus Epiphanes and they cleansed the temple from the defilement that he had brought when he slaughtered a pig on the altar and dedicated it to Zeus. Here Jesus refuses in this, at this time to, to openly declare himself Messiah. Still speaking in sort of codes but he does make this amazing statement in John chapter 10 and verse 30. And by the way, if you got the notes, there was a mistake there. I had Luke 13, 30. I don't know why I had that mistake, but I did. It should be John 10:30. This is where he says, I and the Father are one. John 10 and verse 30. That's about as close as he's going to get to an open declaration. Verse 31, the Jews pick up stones again to stone him. They're going to try to kill him. He withdraws. Chapter 10, verse 40. He went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he stayed there. He withdraws, and he he goes beyond the Jordan. It says he he goes to the east side of the Jordan River, to, to the land which is known as Perea. Perea. He spends three months there. The reason he goes there is because Perea is under the authority of Herod Antipas. This puts him beyond the legal reach of the Jewish authorities. Within striking distance of the city, because he's going to make another trip back, but outside of the jurisdiction, they can't quite arrest him. They want to kill him. They want to stone him. He has to get away. But he wants to stay close. And so very, very you know, wise is Serpents, right? Innocent as doves. He uses the political system and the differing jurisdictions, and he he gets outside of the jurisdiction of the authorities into the land of of Perea. Now, the Pharisees, they're trying to get him back. They want to lure him back to kill him. So in Luke chapter 13, verse 31, they come up to him with this crazy notion to try to scare him and to get him to come back into the land of Israel so they can arrest him. Luke chapter 13, 31. Now, just at that time, some Pharisees approached saying to him, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. So you need to get out of here, Jesus, because if you stay in Perea under the rule of Herod and Antipas, what's going to happen to you is what happened to John, because it was Herod who arrested John and had him executed. And he said to him, "Go, you go tell that old fox. All right? Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today, and tomorrow the third day I reach my goal. And on he goes. Basically what he's saying is, I'm not afraid of him, and my time's not, not ready. I'm not ready yet. So I'm not going to run, and I'm, I'm certainly not going to fall into your trap. I'm going to stay. Stay there. The crowds are following him. He is doing miracles. and chapter 14 of Luke's gospel, beginning in verse 25, he, he winnows the crowds again. He, he tells them to count the cost of discipleship. So where he talks about you need to figure out whether you can complete the the building project, right? I mean, what man starts to build a house until he figures out whether he's got enough materials to complete it? What king goes out to war with his army without figuring out the strength of the force coming to oppose him to know whether to sue for terms of peace before he gets there or engages in the combat? And he says basically the same thing to you. You need to figure out, count the cost. Are you going to continue in the system with the Pharisees The Sadducees, or are you going to leave it and become my disciple? Now, if you say you want to leave it and become my disciple, you better understand it's going to cost you something. Count the cost. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes are are continuing to nip at his heels. Chapter 15, all the tax gatherers and sinners were coming to him to listen to him. It's over in Priya. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Basically, his whole crowd is nothing but rabble. The low life of society. It's at that point that Jesus tells three parables, right? The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Three parables, all designed to teach the same thing. And that is that God rejoices when even one sinner repents and comes to faith in Christ. It's a fantastic thing. Third trip, February now, back to John's Gospel, John chapter 11. Third trip into the, the city. This time he actually only goes as far as Bethany. It's about two miles from the city, but he comes right up close to it. Now you have to remember, they, were, they wanted to kill him the last time. So he's, he is coming right into the lion's teeth. He goes back to Bethany, John chapter 11. And he does it in order to raise Lazarus from the dead. Verse 18, his friend Lazarus. Bethany's about two miles away from Jerusalem. Now you've got to think with me on this. Why did he do this? Did he do it out of compassion for Lazarus' sisters? Probably. There's undoubtedly some of that going on there. But he really did he really do Lazarus that much of a favor? I often ask myself that question. You know what I'm saying? I mean, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So I don't really, honestly, I don't think he did Lazarus all that much of a favor. If I were Lazarus, I would have said I kind of liked it there. (laughs) Right? But he summons him back. And, And it's fascinating because if you read carefully John's gospel here, it says when he got news that Lazarus was sick, and by the way, it's a one day's journey to where he was. When he got news... Lazarus was sick. Instead of going right away with the messenger back, he actually waits two more days. Now later we find out Lazarus has been in the tomb four days, which means that he was dead by the time the message got there. But he deliberately delays, and he deliberately delays because this is going to be the last miracle. And this one's going to be a doozy. This one's going to be such a miracle that it is impossible to come up with any other possible explanation. So he intentionally intensifies the glory of this miracle by waiting two more days until the body has begun to corrode. It's not a swoon. He didn't just get sick and pass out. It wasn't a coma. Any of those things. It was a rotted body that he completely restored to life. I am the resurrection and the life. He does this miracle because it will be from this miracle that he will be able to gather the crowds to him for the triumphal entry. And he needs the crowds, as we'll find out, in order to ensure that he is not killed before the Passover. He needs the protection of the crowds. So he does a miracle here that, is, that is absolutely sets people's heads spinning. You get to the end of chapter 11, and, and the Caiaphas says that, that basically there's, there's no denying what he has done. There's, there's no way to, to say this really didn't happen. And if we don't manage this thing properly, the whole nation is going to start following after him. Jesus takes off after the miracle. He doesn't hang around. He's gone. In fact, later we learn that the, that the only deal they can come up with is they're going to kill Jesus. And now they're going to kill Lazarus too. That's the only way they can figure out to handle it. Let's just kill him too. What resurrection? What guy? Right? He's dead. I mean, I, talk about the blindness of unbelief, Right? He and his disciples hide out at this point. This is early February. They have to hide out. They have to bide their time. They have to wait until the Passover. And they've got to wait somewhere where they're not going to get killed. And so they go to a little town called Ephraim. Ephraim. And it's it's located about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. And they hide. They just kind of hang out there. Bide their time. They wait. And they wait until early March when the the final journey comes. This is the final journey. This is the one that's going to take them to the cross. This is his last time. You can say it this way. It's his fourth time into the city. Mark records it this way. Mark 10, verse 33. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered up And they will condemn him to death. Final journey. Now Jerusalem is the capital city of Israel. And because it is the capital city of Israel. This is where Jesus must come. And make his final and official offer to the nation. To either receive him or reject him as their king. Now he's already been rejected. But he has to be legally rejected. That means he has to come to them. He has to present himself as the messianic king to the nation, in the temple, in the middle of the capital city. And then they'll reject him. Now Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that at about this time of year, the Passover, were roughly 250,000 Passover lambs slaughtered over a two-day period. Now if you assume about one lamb per 10 people... That puts the inhabitants of Jerusalem at this time of year at about two and a half million. Acts chapter 2 tells us that the city is overcrowded and, and that the Jews have come in from all over the diaspora. They've come in all over the known world. This is a feast they have to be there for. And so the maximum number of Jews are now gathered. They are gathered from all over the Roman Empire, they are gathered into the capital city, and the Messiah is going to present himself to the nation. But rather than go right into the city, Jesus does the most incredible thing. Instead of heading south from, from uh, Ephraim into the city, he turns and he heads north through Galilee, or through Samaria to Galilee. He's going the wrong way. You know, you got a map, you go, that's not the right way. It's the wrong way. But there is a, there is a method to his madness. Actually, Luke chapter 17, verse 11. You guys aren't going anywhere today, are you? Got a little longer to go here, I'm sorry, but... worth it. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Passing between Samaria and Galilee. It is here, a little further on, it tells us that that he heals the ten lepers. Now, his purpose in going north instead of south was he wants to join up with all the Galileans who are assembling to head into the city for the feast of the Passover. And so he heads north to where he knows, uh, he's done it every year as a boy, he knows exactly where to meet. And he goes there and he joins in the caravan among the pilgrims from Galilee who are heading south into the city. Now the custom of these people was not to move through Samaria because it defiled them. The custom was for them to go east and cross the Jordan River and come down the east side of the Jordan River and then cross back in at Jericho, make the ascent up over the Mount of Olives and down into the city for the feast. So Jesus is going to to follow with the caravan. This is going to give him protection from the authorities. Furthermore, as he is traveling with the caravan, he is now going to start to do public miracles again. Remember I told you, he's been sort of concealing the miraculous for a while now, and now he's going to do it publicly. He did the big public miracle with the raising of Lazarus. Now he's just going to continue to be doing miracles as he's traveling with the caravan. Why? Why? He wants the crowd to get really whipped up. He wants them excited. So he starts doing miracles. He heals the ten lepers. He travels with the people. He, he gives them parables. He, he warns them of impending judgment. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and following. Talks about the need for persistent prayer, Luke 18, to 8 Speaks about the, the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. Remember, the Pharisee is parading his self-righteousness. The tax gatherer is, or, or is parading his self-righteousness. The tax gatherer is beating his breast, right? Saying, be woe to be merciful to me, the sinner. Who are you supposed to emulate? Yeah, you got it. That guy. The Pharisees are sort of still dogging along with him. And they make a run at him in Matthew chapter 19 over the subject of divorce. Divorce is one of those subjects that raises a lot of passion in people. It hurts. And so they, they attempt to trap him in a discussion of divorce. Divorce. Their purpose is not to understand it. Their purpose is to get him to make a statement that will undercut his credibility among the crowds, among the people. So they're trying to pull him into a debate and trap him in a statement. That's why Jesus handles the topic of divorce in Matthew 19. Is there he also meets with uh, the rich young ruler. You remember that one, the rich young ruler, right? He's the one who said he's done everything. You know, just tell me what I've got to do to inherit the kingdom. You know, I've done everything. Well, I'll keep the law. Well, I've, I've done all that. What else? Just sell everything you've got and give it to the poor and follow me. Says he went away. Sad, right? He had much wealth. Also says that Jesus loved that young man. Loved that young man. So he's promising rewards to follow him, but he's, but he's promising hardship as part of it future rewards, present hardship. All this is going on, he, he speaks, Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16, the, the parable of the workers that are hired at various times. You remember that, right? Some are hired at the beginning of the day. They bear the burden of the day. Others are hired at the last hour. They get the same reward. That's not a discussion of labor policy. Okay. Speaking about the fact that, that the reward is the kingdom itself and some some spend their lives working for the kingdom others kind of creep in at the end but they all get the same thing the first shall be last and the last shall be first which means everybody enters at the same time he foretells his death again and his resurrection to his disciples let's go to mark chapter 10 mark 10 32 They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. Again he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him saying behold we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered into the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. Three days later he will rise from the dead. His disciples at this point they don't want to listen to that message. They're locked in on kingdom coming. That's when James and John get their mother to come and say, you know, hey, give me, you know, do what I want. Do what I ask. What do you want? I want my sons to be on the left and the right hand when your kingdom comes, right? And the rest of the disciples find out about that and they become very angry with them. Not because they asked for the left and the right hand, it's because they got in ahead of the other ones, right? You know, I knew I should have had my mother ask for that. Jesus rebukes him. It must have torn his heart out. He must have torn his heart out. He's on his way to die. And they're, they're arguing about the spoils. He crosses back over the Jordan at Jericho and he enters the city of Jericho. Mark chapter 10, verse 47. He heals blind Bartimaeus and his companion. When they heard that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, they began to cry out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 52, he said to him, Go, your faith has made you well. Immediately regained his sight and began following him on the road. He also visits there in Jerusalem, or Jericho, rather. He he visits that teeny little guy who was up in the tree. Remember him? His name was? Yeah, the wee little man, right? And a wee little man was he. Yeah, Zacchaeus, he was, a, he was a vile tax collector. Jesus sets his grace upon him. Redeems him. Transforms him. It's there that he tells the parable of the pounds. Luke chapter 19. They expect the kingdom to be coming immediately. And he tells the parable of the pounds and basically, the, the principle behind the parable of the pounds is just to say that, that there's going to be a time lapse between the first and second coming. He's beginning to, to spill out some prophecy to them. Now, it's still concealed in the parables, parable of the pounds. He leaves Jerusalem, Luke chapter 19, verse 28. He heads up the backside, the Mount of Olives. he approaches Bethphage and Bethany, near the mountain that is called Olivet. And he sends two of his disciples, right, to go get a mount. Now, there's something happening here. He's going up the backside along with all the pilgrims. He's been doing these incredible miracles. He's been, he's been preaching this radical message. The crowds are enthralled. They're following along with him. The last that was left off was that the authorities in Jerusalem said, we want to know, is he coming? And when he comes, you need to turn him in because we are going to kill him. That's the scenario. But we don't know where he is and when he's going to come. But something's changed now. He's got an advance party. All the pilgrims that have been traveling with him, they make the same trip up the backside of the mount from Jericho. They go over the mount because they're hurrying to get down into the city in time for the Sabbath. So they pour into the city. And people are saying, the Messiah, Jesus, is he coming? Is he coming? Where is he? Anybody know? And they say, yeah, he's with us. Well, where is he? He's not here. Well, when's he going to come into the city? I know exactly when he's going to come. He's going to come Sunday morning. Well, how do you know that? Well, because when we were coming up over the top of the hill, he pulled aside and he's staying at a, at a house of Lazarus and Mary and Martha in Bethphage. And the rest of us are down into the city and it's only two miles down. So he stays there for the Sabbath, Friday night, Saturday. But he'll be there Sunday morning, don't you worry. He'll be back into the city on Sunday morning. So, so Saturday night, he, he's invited to the home after the Sabbath ends. He's invited to the home of Simon the leper, Mark chapter 14. Better get going or children's ministry is going to have my head. Here we go. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard. She broke the vial and poured it over his head. This is where Mary anoints him for his burial at dinner. I mean, she's sort of beholden to him because it was not very long ago that Jesus raised her brother from the dead. She anoints him for his burial. Now the, the disciples, they rebuke her and they say, what a waste of money. This expensive perfume could have been sold, should have been sold, and the money would have been available for the poor. And the one who is making that argument most vocally is Judas. Not because Judas cares about the poor, but because Judas is the treasurer of the apostolic band and he's a thief. And he has been embezzling from the cash box for a very long time. So he wants it sold. Put the money in the cash box so I can put it in my pocket. Jesus rebukes him with a very stinging public rebuke. John records it in John twelve verses four to seven. Don't turn there in enough time. It is at that point in time that Judas decides to betray him. That's when Judas decides to betray him. Now it will take a while before he can put his plan into action, but it's at that time that Judas decides had enough. Decides to betray him. It's actually Tuesday night before he does the dirty deed. This sets up the last scenario for us this morning. That's the triumphal entry, and we'll move quickly. The triumphal entry. It's recorded in all four gospel accounts. We'll go to Matthew's gospel just to have a place to land, Matthew 21. This is, the, this is his public entrance into the city. This is the assertion that he's Messiah, and this is, this is his claim for national acknowledgement. And it must happen in the capital city. Psalm 118, verse 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is to be the day of his, of his enthronement. Prophecy is fulfilled. The pilgrims come out on Sunday morning. They know he's coming into the city. That's how they all get there. They throw their robes, their garments into the the path ahead of him, right? They cut the palm boughs and and they put them down. And and this all has sort of prophetic and and nationalistic symbolism. He is the hailing, they're hailing the coming deliverer, the conqueror, the the great Davidic king, the one who is going to throw off the the yoke of Rome. So there's all of this stuff going on into the city he comes and he and he's riding on the colt of a donkey into the city in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9 this is an interesting way for a conquering hero to enter the city by the way he doesn't come in on a white charger he will the second coming but he comes in on this lowly beast of burden no pomp No flash, no display of worldly power, just riding a lowly animal of peace into the city. Crowds call out to him using the the verbiage from Psalm 118. Blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118, verse 26. Hosanna, which means save now. Hosanna is the son of David. These pilgrims, by the way, that are protecting him. The Pharisees want to kill him, but they can't get to him because of the crowds. He's surrounded by throngs of adoring crowds, and they kill they still can't get him, and they are frustrated. That's why they are delighted when Judas comes to them and offers them a way to get him quietly. So amazing. The Pharisees object. To the, to the outcry of the crowds, and, and Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for this. In the past, Jesus was keeping the crowd silent about who he was. Now he's encouraging them to proclaim it. He enters the temple, Matthew 21, verse 14. The blind and lame come to him in the temple, and he heals them. Verses 15 and 16, the chief priests and the scribes saw all the wonderful things that he had done and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and they said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself. Basically what he's saying is that the, even the children are spiritually wiser than the leadership of Israel. You should be singing my praises. And it has to be left to the children. He doesn't spend long in the temple right now. He turns and he leaves, actually. Verse 17. He left them. He went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Back up to Bethany, to the home of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Why? Because if he stays in the city, they'll kill him. But he, he can go out of the city, away from them, and he comes under the protection of his host. Now listen, hospitality in the, in the Eastern world is a very serious thing. We don't understand it in the West. To bring someone under your roof is to, is to undertake for their personal safety, even at the cost of your own safety, or even that of your uh, children. So he's safe. He's safe in the home of Lazarus. And that's where he will be under protection. He will every day come into the city. He will leave again. Until he's ready. This sets up the drama of the Passion Week. This sets it up. Jesus is going to force the nation to choose. They're going to choose between him or the corrupt religious system that they have grown up with. They cannot have both. They cannot be reconciled. You must have one or the other to choose against me Or to ignore me is to choose against me. Beloved, that's exactly what Jesus does to every single one of us. He puts us in a position where there is no possibility of a way out. He puts you in the corner. He boxes you in. He cuts off all avenues of escape. And what he says to you is you have one choice. You either choose me or you choose against me. You are either for me or you are against me. What will it be? There are some of you out here right now where you are at the moment of choice. You've arrived at the moment of choice. What will it be? Will you repent? Will you humble your heart? Will you by faith embrace Jesus the Messiah who died on a cross and rose from the dead on the third day? That by believing on him, your sin would be Atoned for, you would have life everlasting. Or will you continue to ignore him? Will you continue to hang on to the corrupt vestiges of whatever religious tradition you come here with? The choice is yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, O Lord, for sending the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that your scriptures provide such a clear and compelling narrative of his teaching and his healing. Thank you that you bring us to the place of decision. I pray for your grace to prevail this morning in our hearts that we might decide for Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.